Hello everybody, it's Colin Ellis here, it's Monday the 28th of March 2022 and welcome to another Culture and Coffee podcast. Uh, I'm in Brisbane in Queensland today, so uh, it's on the east coast, it's, kind of, it's about halfway up the east coast of Australia, it's massive this country, it's absolutely, I was trading messages with Guy on LinkedIn, um, who's from a similar part of the world to me uh, last week. And he was saying, do I know somebody from Perth? And I'm like, oh, you just don't realise how big this country is absolutely huge. I think I think this is right to say for all of Europe inside Australia kind of land. I think that's right. Anyway, I'm in, uh, I'm in Queensland and it's raining, so there's your weather update. I get that done straight away. Uh, and I'm in a great little spot. I'm in almost a kind of proper little... Um, espresso bar so you can get all the noises there you're going to get people ordering their coffee they've got the music going they've got grinding beans and making coffee it's all going on I've got um, I've got the workers walking past me people returning to the office so lots of people walking past and sometimes it hits ten past seven in the morning the weird thing about Queensland um, but the thing, so this, I think this is only my fourth visit here to My first visit actually was to see uh, Everton play here, and they were awful. Um, but I really couple of great nights out. This is what I remember most about it, not the game. Um, but yeah, the thing here is they don't do daylight savings. They don't do day- now. I could be wrong, and I frequently have been. And I'm sure I'll get corrected. I'm sure it's something to do with cows. Like the cows wouldn't like it or the cows wouldn't adjust to it. And I feel like I've read in the past that have been pushes to change that, to to kind of start doing daylight saving. I don't really know the genesis of daylight saving. Um, but yeah, apparently the cows wouldn't like it. So they don't do daylight saving. So it's a two hour flight to Brisbane from Melbourne. Um, but then because of the hour difference, it's almost one hour from going back in time. Um, yes, but I'm in a cool little spot, it's called Edward's Specialty Coffee, and um, I ordered a pour over, and it's a Colombian geisha, so I really can't wait to drink it, but it's so awesome, the guy brought it over. It's, I've got a little, a little jug here, like a like Hario jug, um, and a beautiful wide neck cup, and he, talked to me about the coffee and where it's from and he gave me the full brief and I just think it's just like like if you if you like coffee or if you like tea or like just go to places that specialise in it what really makes me happy is across the road there's a Starbucks which I'm looking at right now and there are way more people waiting for coffee here than there are for Starbucks not that there's not a place for Starbucks I understand the role of Starbucks in I do before any Starbucks fans kind of unsubscribe to the podcast. I get it. I get it. I get it. You like your big silly coffee. Oh, yeah, I know. I understand. Um, but it's great that these places uh, still exist. So I'm loving the the kind of feel of this place. I'm sat in the window. It's almost like a little booth in the window and a little stool um, overlooking overlooking the road here, which is Edward Street. Um, the I'm not sure if you know the, the kind of history of, of espresso bars. Uh, so there's about, in Italy alone, there's about 150,000 espresso bars uh, serving kind of 175 cups of coffee every day. So that's a lot. And that's just that's just espressos. That's not all of the other cubbins. You know, your 
macchiato, all of the other things. That's just espressos. Um, most of these things, most of these kinds of establishments can be traced back to the Romans. So the ancient Romans used they they, they had like stalls and shops. It was called the taberna, T-A-B-E-R-N-A. And it was kind of a place to stop. If you were traveling from one place to another, a taberna was a place to stop. And, and coffee was just one of the drinks. And coffee originated from, from Africa, from Ethiopia, if you've heard of previous podcasts that I've done on this. Uh, so by the mid, by the 16th century, the Middle East was really starting to embrace coffee and then Turkish-style coffees. Um, and then, so what you had was... Um, kind of coffee bars sprang up in ports, so where you had Middle Eastern tra- uh, traders, because they sprang up in ports, and, and the most famous one in Venice, for anyone who's ever been to Venice, was the Café Florian, which opened in the mid-18th century. Uh, and, and, and really they grew from there, and they were kind of places just to stop for a, for a drink, for, you know, to relax. Uh, and, and I still have really fond memories of my, my, my wife and I went to Florence good many years ago now. And I just wanted to, I might have mentioned this, but I just wanted to sample the kind of hustle and bustle of daily life, as you do as a tourist. I'm sure that's what you want to do. I really want to sample the hustle bustle of working life. Um, but I did, and we went to an espresso bar, and it was just so awesome. Like People coming in and very passionate, talking about the football the night before, because I could make out the football team names and nothing else. And we just sat and drank coffee and these little, great little bars. They're, they're fabulous people dropping in. Uh, it was also an actual actual bar as well. We could go for a drink afterwards, even better. They, uh, the espresso bars, by the way, arrived in Australia uh, with the Italian immigrants. Pellegrini's Espresso Bar and Legend Cafe, often named as, as uh, Australia's first espresso bars. Anyway, today I'm going to talk about merging team cultures. I'm just going to have a sip of this coffee, actually. I've let it sit for a while. The guy said that if I let it sit for a while, I'll get notes of it. That's the thing he said, if I drink it hot, I'll get notes of vanilla and black tea. But if I let it cool, I'll get, get a little taste of notes of elderflower, and that's absolutely spot on. That's exactly what I'm getting. But now I don't know whether I'm getting it because he told me that. Do you know what I mean? If he said it's going to taste like strawberry shortcake, I'm going to be like, oh my god, it tastes like strawberry shortcake. My palate's not that well developed that I would be able to. Um, pick out elderflower without being told, I think. I'm trying not to sound like a coffee idiot here, which is really hard on a coffee podcast. Let's talk about merging team cultures. I've done um, two workshops this year, uh, with one with an organisation and one with a team where they've merged cultures. And of course the challenge there is one of the many challenges, you've got two disparate groups of people different managers and different reports and their backgrounds, different managers, different reporting lines. Often the organisations have stood for two different things. And what you've got to do is not only bring them together, but you've got to bring them together in a way where there's no loss of service, no loss of sales, no loss of impetus. And it's really tough to do. It's really tough to do. Um, And so, you know, one of the many things that I do is help organisations to, to 
to merge these two things. Um, and and when you get it right, what you get is this almost this seamless evolution into something that's new, not something that's evolved. Now I know a lot, I talk a lot about culture evolution, but when you bring two teams together or when you bring two organisations together, you're looking to create something that not only leverages the the strengths of both existing cultures, but to create something that has its own sense of belonging. Otherwise, what tends to happen is that if you just evolve it, the dominant culture will prevail. Which means that someone will always feel left out, a process, someone will always understand the process and won't understand the, a process. Um, what you end up doing is seeing kind of the merger of those two things as a way of maybe chopping out pieces from the less dominant culture. Now, the, 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 best, the best fictional example of this, for those of you who've watched the English TV, the TV show The Office, is when David Brent's team has to absorb the Swindon branch, or as equals in the Swindon lots. And, you know, it's a classic example of the, the Redden branch is the dominant culture and the Swindon branch has to, Swindon branch has to integrate into the Redden branch. It's not one new culture. And then there's this classic episode where David Brent takes the people from Swindon to the pub, spends about 10 minutes trying to talk to them and then literally just gives up. Uh, and at that point, he kind, of, he kind of gives up on the merger. But, you know, joking aside, these things happen in real life. There was a great uh, case study from kind of 2013-2016 where um, Kraft Foods, one of the biggest food manufacturers in the world, right? And so in 2014-15, in the board approved a merger with the Heinz company, H.J. Heinz, so you can be, um, and they named the company Kraft Heinz Co. Now, I got asked the question when I was working with the, the merger organisation, and they said, oh, if we put one name before the other, does that send a message of a dominant culture? I was like, well, it can do. You just have to make sure that you undertake activity so that people understand that that's not what it means and that's not what it's about. Um, because that's how that's perception. More often we do it from a, from a linguistic point of view. It's easier to say. It's easier to say Kraft Heinz than Heinz Kraft. Also, Heinz Kraft sounds like it could be something else. Anyway, so at that point, fifth large manufacturing company in the world, revenues kind of 25 billion plus. Um, and and it was seen as a this is a really good move that you know that let's bring these organisations together it's a good thing to do and so on but then in 2016 so a year after the merger the, the new company just suddenly wrote off 15 billion dollars and announced that they were being investigated for all kinds of things not least accounting practices and procurement and. In the intervening time while that was happening, food habits had started to change. You know, you had movies like Kind of Supersize Me, which had been released earlier, you had the rise of vegetarianism, the rise of veganism, so this real push on, on healthy food. And so even though the organisation had taken steps to actually reduce the duplication in process, they'd done nothing to bring the cultures together. They've done nothing to, to try and merge the organisations. They've done nothing. I mean, that's not fair. Actually, they, you know, they will have undertaken some initiatives. 
to try and do it, but not in a way that was meaningful, not in a way that created a new sense of this is what it means to be part of um, Kraft Heinz Co. Not in a way that got people to behave in a different way, so ethics were maintained, all of that stuff uh, leading to this, this widespread investigation. It, 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 kind of, it, it kind of failed. They, you know, it was it was largely seen as a rebranding exercise rather than a culture definition exercise. Um, and so I did some research, you know, in, in, ahead of the podcast. So I looked at particularly mergers and acquisitions because I thought it's a, you know it's always a good measure, particularly if you're building bringing two teams together. Kind of what does the research say about mergers and acquisitions, and you know the success of merging cultures. So um, there's, there was a there was a great. A piece of research from called, uh, was it called Corporate Culture Evidence from the Field. And it was updated at the beginning of this year, beginning of 2022. And what they found, I'm just going to read this bit verbatim here. It says, our results indicate that cultural fit is so important that 54% of executives would walk away from an acquisition if it's a poor cultural fit, whilst another 33% would discount the offer price for the culturally misaligned target by 10 to 30%. And so what that's saying is actually, it's not just about looking at the profitability of a company, it's about what exists already. And Microsoft did this recently when they bought um, Activision Blizzard. You know, and Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, came out and said, culture's the most important, we fixed that. We are gonna integrate the culture, we're gonna work with them to help them develop the culture. And so you've got that almost that meeting of minds, and Microsoft, like most tech companies, have got a very strong culture. They put a lot of time, effort, and thought um, into it. So what to do? I guess I don't know. you're like, come on, just can you just get to the bit where we find out what we do enough for the fifth um, uh, So what do you do? Well, it, you'd be surprised to hear me say this, but it's one of those things that um, requires planning. It's it's like any change management process. It's like change management approach is in order for your new team to be a success, you have to redefine the culture that you need for it to be successful. You can't just cross your fingers and hope for the best. You can't undertake some kind of process rationalization program, look at what you strip out, or what most people do first is look at the headcount and go, right, who can we lose? Where, where can we save money on headcount? And I get that, you know, it's not that I'm unsympathetic to that, but. But really, if you want it to be a successful, naturally, if you want to exit people in the right way, the first thing you're going to do is to is to redefine the culture, to make sure that, that people, you know, kind of have a say in, in what the new organisation is, and then make the decision themselves whether they want to actually be part of it or not. Because it's always it always works better. So the first thing you do is you make sure that you you form connections between the team members. Again, it doesn't matter whether you bring an organization together or a team, so two team members. And so this is where culture, cultural kind of definition, like a workshop or in a way there, whatever you want to do, this is where it comes in. Um, it, it almost kind of pays for itself straight away because at the start of any culture workshop, you make sure everybody understands each other. You make sure that people understand background, where you've, where you've come from, kind of what you do, job, yeah, it's important, what kind of personality do you have, you know, kind of how do you like to be communicated to, all of those things, I'll come back to communication in the next thing. 
so you, what you want to do is build empathy. You want to build understanding. You want to build that sense of awareness. Now, one of the managers said to me last week, but, but aren't I just inviting competition? Are people not going to be like, we've got the same jobs? What does that mean for us? I was like, well, if, if, if they're most mistrustful of the process that you're going through, potentially so your communication has to be really, really good. so when you when you're bringing two teams or two organizations together you, it, you, the communication needs to be clear unambiguous you need to, you need to talk openly and honestly about what the plan is so if if there's a cost challenge you have to talk about the cost challenges if you're going to deduplicate the roles you're going to have to get some people on stupid they'll figure that out themselves and, and if you're looking to build a foundation built on kind of trust, then it's two ways. So they're looking for management just to be honest about kind of what's ahead of us. Otherwise, you wouldn't you wouldn't really get that kind of competition for places. You get that you start to get that understanding. Well, people are starting trying to start to figure each other out. If people are still trying to figure each other out three months, six months after you brought the teams or organisations together, you've already lost the opportunity because there's already a, a, a kind of negativity that will start to breed itself as people are like, why haven't they done anything? Why haven't they brought the teams together? Why haven't they? I still don't know James who works over there. You know, I still don't know Beverly who works over there, whatever it might be. Um, also, what happens then is you, you start to build a kind of new set of stories. Once you build people together, once you communicate, all of a sudden, People feel part of something, they're in something together, they've had the same communication at the same time, in the same way. And so you're starting to treat people as one new team, not two teams that need to be evolved into one. And then the third, so the second thing is communication, make sure your communication is open, clear and transparent. And then the last thing is to undertake the activity to create that new sense of belonging. All right, so define, for us to succeed as a team and an organization, what are the behaviors that we expect of each other? What are those principles of collaboration? How are we gonna to work together? What tools are we gonna use? And again, that needs to be part of the conversation. Um, and the communication is you know, looking at the tools that you're gonna rush. You want people to get, it's cliched, I know, but you want people to go on the journey together. It's much better when you, you know, we're hoping to, hoping to get away uh, next week on holiday, but we've involved the kids in it as much as we possibly can. So we've talked to them about, you know, what we'd like to do, what our plans are, and we've asked them what they would like to do, where they would like to go. You're always going to get more greater by like my son just doesn't want to go to art galleries. It's just like he's not having anything. I don't want to go to an art gallery. And we're like, okay, cool. Well, my wife was like, cool. I'm like, just think we can miss out on. Um, but cool, if that's what you want to do. And because what you don't want to do is have to force anyone to do anything. And the same is true of culture, right? Is when people come together to define this thing for themselves, they feel part of it. It belongs to them then. It's theirs. They're not being told. Now, in one of the organizations I was working for, they decided to keep the values of one of the organizations. And they were like, is that wrong? Should we redefine the values? I said, well, if the values are applicable to the, the new company, I said, I think, I think that's okay. I said, you should probably look, you know, kind of in maybe two years' time, you should maybe look at your values. I mean, you should always be refreshing your values anyway and asking yourself what you stand for. Uh, I said, but what's important 
is for the new team and the new organisation we define what are the behaviours and principles of collaboration for this new team in pursuit of those values such that those people who've just joined the organisation and they weren't their values before are like, oh cool, I now know how to apply those values in my new job. So I think, you know, kind of those, those three things is, is form connections between people, make sure there's clear, open, honest communication about the process, and then undertake activity to define the new culture so that this new formed organization, this new formed team, understand what it means to be part of something different, something new. And from that point, you're creating a series of stories, which and stories are the glue that holds culture together, a set of stories for the new team. You've created a new dynamic, one where they feel that they're in it all together and where the team members uphold the culture. Uh, if you want more, any more on culture, anything at all, we'd love you to join us on the Culture Makers community. That's www.culturemakers.community. There's loads of online programs. Uh, we're almost at 600 members now, people around the world, which is fabulous. Showing some great insights with you to join us. Otherwise, I hope you've enjoyed the podcast and enjoy the rest of the day wherever you are in the world. Terrific.